WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Encephalopathy is a broad term for any brain disease. It alters the brain function and even the structure of it. Today we're talking to Alex Roy about his research on a specific rare genetic disorder in encephalopathy. Alex, may you please introduce yourself and tell us more about your research on this rare genetic disorder? Thanks for having me. My name is Alex Roy. I'm a bachelor's, master's, dual degree student in the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. Our lab works on a disorder called GNA01 encephalopathy, which, as Chelsea said, it's a disorder that affects the brain and the structure of the brain. So not just how it functions, but how it develops. Kids who have these disorders begin displaying seizures, so epilepsy-like symptoms, and different movement disorders from their early infancy, maybe even hours after they're born. And what I'm trying to do and what our lab is trying to do is find differences in the brain, structural differences that you can actually see under a microscope to sort of inform what's going on with these disorders and how can we help treat patients. Nice to meet you this morning, Alex. Now, when it comes to the structural differences in the brain, how does one actually see that? Do you look at little pieces of the brain or do you do a full brain scan itself? Some groups who study this disorder have actually done different brain scans in patients. However, what we do is we have mouse models of certain really common patient mutations. So one thing about this disease that actually makes it really difficult is that there's about 200 known patients in the world. It's ultra rare. I mean, there may be more, but you only really know when you actually do DNA sequencing. And a bunch of the different patients have different mutations. They don't all have the same type of the disorder, even though in the end, it's all affecting the same brain protein. So we have mouse models where we induce the mutations in a mouse. And at that point, we can then collect brain samples and slice them up very thin, do fluorescent staining of those brain sections, and then look at them under a fluorescent microscope. Wow, only 200 known patients in the world is a really small amount considering how large the world is. So you have mouse models with common patient mutations, but how do you induce a mutation in the mouse? Is it done before the mouse is born or is it done afterwards? And how long do you keep the mouse alive for your experiments? There's a lot of different ways to do it, but sort of a, a newer strategy that is sort of gaining prominence, even in the mainstream, outside of scientists, you'll even hear about it on the news, is an approach called CRISPR. So without going too much into it, CRISPR is a very powerful technology, Nobel winning technology that allows you to make very specific genetic changes. So at the embryonic stage, back when we were starting this project, we edited the germline, the sperm or the egg cells of mice to, instead of having both normal copies of the GNA gene, to have one of them with the patient mutation copy. So that's called knocking in the allele or variant of that gene. And then once we have the mice, so that was done once years ago, now we have a stable colony of these mice that we manage and we use them for all sorts of different things. So for my experiment specifically, which we can talk about in a little bit, I look at 30 days after birth, which is the time that the cerebellum 
which is the brain region that I'm actively working in, is about done developing in those mice, or at least for a healthy adult mouse would be. It's great that new advancements like CRISPR have been able to make experiments like yours possible to perform in laboratory settings like here at our university. I heard that you were saying that when it comes to your particular mice, you wait for the cerebellum to completely develop. What does the cerebellum have to do with this genetic disorder that you're looking at? I'll start off by saying that GNAL1 is the most expressed membrane protein, so protein that sits at the membrane of individual cells, in this case neurons, the most abundant membrane protein in the central nervous system. And despite it being so abundant, we don't know as much about it as we know about certain other proteins in the nervous system, and we can get into it, but it's something called a G protein, which are expressed in other places, and there are ones we know more about. So since it's expressed everywhere, it's important in a lot of brain regions. But the cerebellum is implicated a lot in the movement disorder side of this disease. So some patients have epilepsy, some of them have movement disorders, some of them have both, and almost all patients also have developmental delay. So the cerebellum is important a lot in movement coordination. So different areas of the brain feed through the cerebellum, and there are different theories sort of for how this works. But one is that the cerebellum coordinates some of the different signals coming from different places in the brain for movement that is well coordinated. Instead of having movements that are sort of different signals going different places, the cerebellum is sort of the organization center for movement and also for the learning of different movement skills. So one thing we see in patients is that they have developmental delay. They don't hit milestones at the same time as other kids their age. For example, they may begin to walk at a normal time but then not be able to even out. So the cerebellum is also important in sort of that acquisition of motor skills during development. At least you know with this specific mutation that there is motor coordination impairment, and then you're also seeing that with the mice, so it's good to know that there's that consistency. However, how do you know that that mutation is what you specifically wanted and that it actually worked? Yeah, you're right. So whenever you set out to make a model of a disease, and in this case, a mouse model, you have to make sure that it matches the disease that you set out to emulate. So for us, that meant actually doing behavioral experiments, making sure that, as you as you said, that they match the patients. They have impaired motor learning. For example, on a rotating rod, if you put them on a rod that rotates and make them as it accelerates, do they have sort of impaired learning of that skill? That's like one example of something that we can see Do these mice have a problem compared to normal mice? And then another validation step is actually doing sequencing and making sure that you got the genetic change. And it's funny you mention that because in the mouse that I'm working with, we actually got something different than we expected. We had aimed to create a certain patient mutation, but instead we have a situation where there's less functional protein than normal. So instead of getting the patient mutation, the mice have about half the normal functional amount of the GNAO1 protein, which is actually called G-alpha-O, and that is useful for its own purposes. So actually, it's a really good point that you bring up is that it's not just about the experiments. There are There's a lot of validation that goes into it because we are seeing things with these mice, things that are very interesting that sort of are the foundation of my project and what I'm doing, but what it applies to and what it means depends on like how well your model translates and what ac- mutations you've actually created. It's like you're highlighting there. Consistency really is important when it comes to doing these kinds of scientific studies, especially when you're making assumptions across different species, 
like for example, between the mouse and human model. It was talked about a little bit in this interview is how the production of a specific protein in the brain is what's leading to these different ailments. What is the relationship between this protein and the gene that is being mutated in the patients? The gene GNAL1, which is what's mutated in these patients, codes for the protein G-alpha-O. And as I mentioned, G-alpha-O is very, very abundant in the central nervous system. It's part of what's called, and I'm about to drop a lot of big words, but I'll explain them, I promise. It's part of what's called a heterotrimeric G-protein. So heterotrimeric is just a fancy word to say that it has three parts and that all three parts are different. So G-alpha-O is just one part of a three-part company, and its friends are called beta and gamma. When G-alpha-O is attached to beta and gamma, it sits at receptors, and these receptors are called G-protein-coupled receptors. And these are all over the brain. I think it's something like over 30% of all pharmaceuticals directly target this type of receptor. And one example is a certain type of dopamine receptor in the striatum, which is not the area we're in now, but people may have heard of dopamine. It's things like neurotransmitters in the brain can act on these receptors. And when they do, then these G-alpha-O and beta-gamma, they get activated. So they separate from each other, goes off on its way, beta-gamma stick together, and they both can go do a laundry list of things, different things that affect how neurons fire, in some cases how they develop. Really, that's a whole topic in of itself. But in the patients, they have a mutation in GNAL1 which means they make a G-alpha-O protein that doesn't work quite right. And what exactly that means is still very much up to discover. So some people would argue that there are what are called gain-of-function mutations and loss-of-function mutations, where they're signaling too much or too little. Others argue that actually it's all loss-of-function. So the exact nature of these mutations and the effects that they have are very complicated and still very much up for discovery. They have one functional GNAO1 copy making perfectly normal, and you have one mutated copy that occurs that occurs spontaneously. One more thing to note is that as with most genes in the body, you have two copies of it, and patients only have mutations in one part. So they have one perfectly functional copy of GNAO1 making functional G-alpha-O protein that acts at receptors normally, but then they have this mutant copy which is creating those mutant proteins. And some argue that the mutant can actually mess with the normal copy too. So that's even another sort of complication to the whole story. So speaking about proteins, I'd like to talk about fluorescent microscopy. At the very beginning of this interview, you had said that you were using fluorescent microscopy. Can you explain how this protein is involved with them and what you've observed in the microscope? When you take a brain section, you can look at it under a light microscope, which is what many people probably used in their high school biology lab. That uses light to illuminate tissue or whatever you're looking at, and that comes up through the eyepiece so you can see it. Fluorescent microscopy is a little different. Tissue and cells have some very low baseline amount where if you shoot them with fluorescence, you can see them. What you have to do first is somehow tag your protein of interest. So in this case, I'm not actually looking at G-alpha-O, but I'm looking at other structural and functional proteins in the cerebellum to look for differences. In my case, for the mouse, I'm looking at less functional G-alpha-O. So now my question is, we know those mice are abnormal. Why? Can we see structural differences in the cerebellum? 
So what I have to do then is for whatever specific protein target I want to look at, I use what's called immunohistochemical staining or immunofluorescent staining, which in my case means we're using antibodies, just like the kind you'd find in your immune system, but that are hyper-specific to the protein you're looking at. And what you do is you wash those over the section, and then you actually, it's a trick, you use another antibody that's specific to antibodies. So you put on an antibody that's specific to your protein, and then you put another antibody on top of that that finds those antibodies. And then there's a fluorescent tag attached to that second one. And then once those tags light up, then that light travels into a detector, which you can view on a computer and take really, really pretty images. So one of the techniques I use sort of just shines light over the whole section from an LED and then detects all the fluorescent light that comes off, the emission that comes off. And another type of microscopy I use, which is very similar, is called confocal. And the reason that's important is that that uses a laser and then I can look even finer. A laser shoots a really tiny region. So you can look sort of up and down. If you imagine taking my very thin section that's 30 millionths of a meter thick, already very thin. And then you can use a laser to even look at specific sections within the section. And that allows you to do very detailed reconstructions of what's going on and look at very small features like synapses themselves if you stain them. Over the last month now, our episodes have covered a wide range of different microscopy techniques from scanning electron microscopes, transmission electron microscopes. And now in this episode, we're talking a little bit about confocal microscopes. Now that we've highlighted all the methods that you're using to study these different proteins, what exactly are you looking for? Are you collecting a specific kind of information? And how does this contribute to your results? I mentioned before that these mice have motor deficits. So this prompted a previous PhD student named Jade to do what's called an electrophysiological study, which is a fancy way of saying she looked in the cerebellum at the electrical signaling and the currents coming off of certain cells. In this case, they're called Purkinje cells. And she found that there was a reduced inhibitory input onto them. So neurons sort of have the gas pedal and the brake pedal. You can have excitatory inputs, which cause them to fire more readily and you have inhibitory inputs, which throw on the brakes. It seemed like for some reason, there was a reduction in the number of functional inhibitory inputs onto this cell type. So what I'm doing now is looking, why is there a reduced inhibitory input? Are there fewer inhibitory cells? Or when those inhibitory cells go to talk to these Purkinje cells, are they just making less connections? Or are the connections that they're making underdeveloped for some reason? It's unfortunate that there's a decrease in the inhibitory factors of these Purkinje cells. So that would mean that these Purkinje cells are more likely to be activated or excited in other terms. Is there something else that you can do to give these patients or to even put in your experiments like some sort of solution or chemical that could increase inhibitory factors or just increase the inhibition in general of these Purkinje cells? Now we get into a a really complicated territory. And this is actually the difficult part of doing research on things like this, is you can find differences maybe, but what what to do to treat them is a whole nother story. So I'm looking for structural differences. And what that could potentially show if I find structural differences is that if we find structural differences, that maybe the best strategy would actually be to act earlier. If there's somehow that we could figure out that embryos have this mutation and use a gene therapy treatment in utero to cure that, but that's something potentially that could happen in the future. 
or if we could get a gene therapy treatment to patients early enough in childhood that the development can be rescued. That to me is something that I'm very interested in in my future, just sort of things I want to research in the future is like how that could work. But in terms of actually increasing the inhibition, again, we get into very difficult territory. So there are different drugs that have been repurposed for GNAO1 patients from other disorders, because again, these, these diseases are so small, it's actually hard to get drugs developed just for this disease, something that is difficult to deal with. So you try to repurpose drugs, and there have been some that have been successful, but do they actually increase the inhibition of the Purkinje cells? That's a very specific action to take to get that because a lot of these drugs that are used sort of tamper with neurotransmission, um, neurotransmitter balance, some treatments actually just involve directly applying more neurotransmitter, like some patients are treated with essentially dopamine. It's really hard to do that. So my study specifically is looking for structural differences. And that could inform what treatments to use maybe, but to me, the end-all be-all for a lot of these rare genetic disorders will be gene therapy treatments, which it's an exciting time that we can even think about treatments like that. Well, I'm really excited for the work that you're going to end up doing for these future experiments that come up for you. Hopefully, you get some really positive results. You said that you're doing a bachelor's, master's program, but what are you thinking about doing afterwards? Do you want to go into the industry world? Or are you planning on pursuing a PhD after? I'm looking at PhD programs right now. The exact flavor of PhD program, I'm not entirely sure of yet. Right now, I'm in a pharmacology lab, and I could see myself staying there, or potentially even going to something like molecular biology. Really, what I'm interested in is looking at disorders like this one that are rare, hard to treat, hard to get the money to develop drugs for? And is there a way that we can maybe make gene therapy a more accessible option? Where are the bottlenecks in the process of getting gene therapy drugs that are very custom to certain patients? That's really what I'm ultimately the most interested in. How can we help people that are sort of underserved by the systems we currently have? So what that means is I have to find a PhD, get my training, and then go onwards in academia or wherever that takes me. Those are really good options, and I wish you the best of luck in trying to figure out which department you want to work in and what you specifically want to do for your PhD in the future. Something that we like to do, though, is to ask people, what do you like to do for fun? For example, are you doing any fun activities on campus, like any clubs? Yeah, I'm really busy in the lab, but I'm also busy outside of the lab. So I am on the MSU drumline in the Spartan marching band. I play bass drum. I'm one of the co-section leaders for this next year. And then I'm also on the MSU ballroom dance team. So if you're new on campus or if you're a graduate student that needs something to do or an undergraduate student that needs something to do, all are welcome at that club too. It's really cool that you're able to balance all of these incredible extracurricular activities while maintaining your research. I've never played in a drumline before, but I could imagine it's a lot of fun, especially whenever you're playing a Spartan game and doing the halftime shows. Thank you so much for joining us today, Alex, to talk to us about your work and the kinds of research that you're doing inside of the new big lab. And good luck with the rest of your program. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.